G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. G'day, everyone. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast. Uh, middle of the Australian Open tennis, always a big couple of weeks in Melbourne. AFLW in full swing, although not without enormous logistical difficulties, which we'll talk about very shortly. Uh, summer in its truest form appears to have finally arrived in in this town, some hot weather over the last few days and a bit more to come, as I say. Very good morning to my co-host, Mark Fine. How are you doing, Finey? I'm doing very well. I'm glad you mentioned the weather. I will, I'm, I'm officially, for the rest of my life, going to take umbrage when anybody makes derogatory comments about the Melbourne weather. I, I note that the women's ashes has been sort of... Um, had had a very difficult period in Adelaide. Apparently their weather's perfect. Sydney has rained on and off the entire summer. I guess Perth is consistently Sahara-like, but we've got very good weather rolling. And it's been beautiful. Yeah, it's been... Uh, yeah, I've got a few issues about the humidity. It's, um, you know, this is the crusty old man sort of comment, but uh, we live in a far more humid city than uh, we did growing up as kids, finally. Uh, it's quite... Well, it's not bizarre. It's it's climate change, but uh, uh, a lot more humidity now. You don't get those sort of days of scorching heat and then it breaks and the temperature drops 20 degrees in half an hour or whatever, it's more a gradual thing now. And the humidity these days I find quite oppressive. I could never, ever live in the tropics, I can tell you that. Yeah, I was going to say, why don't you grab a few satay sticks, walk around the local park, and I know that international travel's difficult. You can pretend you're in Singapore or Malaysia and have a holiday right here in steamy old Melbourne. Yeah, no, thank you very much. All right. (laughs) We've got plenty to talk about, plenty of news happening, uh, vinyl and video. We're into the top 10 countdown now. We've got some more nostalgia with fantastic footy flashbacks and some uh, sage life advice in Life Hacks. Let's do it. On Footyology Newsfeed. Well, last couple of years we've been used to... Um, what are those key words? Agility and flexibility on the fixturing front with the men. Um, boy, has AFLW had to be flexible this year. The changes keep coming. We've had last-minute adjustments to fixtures. We've had games called off. I think the uh, Western Bulldogs have only played one of their last three scheduled games. And so it continues as we record this on Tuesday. Still one game scheduled to complete round three, and uh, that is Brisbane taking on Carlton at Metricon Stadium Tuesday evening. So that may well have been uh, run and won by the time you hear this. But um, 
it's getting to that uh, festival of footy status now because we have first game of the next round, round four, scheduled on Thursday night. So just two days hence. And we've had two games originally set for rounds six and ten, Collingwood versus West Coast and the Western Bulldogs versus Fremantle have been brought forward to next Tuesday, the 1st of February. So um, really hard to, to work out, a bit like uh, the season a couple of years ago, where one round finishes and one round ends. Of course, uh, the WA border closures having a fair bit to do with that, but COVID protocols have really played havoc uh, with several team schedules, most notably um, the Western Bulldogs, Brisbane being affected, Gold Coast being affected, uh, a lot of a lot of uh, clubs been affected. Of course, finally, one thing you got to remember here too with the women, um, not fully professional. Uh, there's a lot of jobs, uh, not to mention childcare arrangements, etc., to be considered. So it's been quite a remarkable effort by all concerned, the players, the clubs, and the AFLW, even keeping the fixture going these past few weeks. I couldn't agree more. I think you've struck on the salient point there where. Whilst the men, yes, they had to move into hubs and disturb their personal lives, their professional lives were not affected because they are professional footballers and, of course, getting paid accordingly. As for the women, this is obviously a... And we know that their employees would be understanding during the AFLW season, but this, for some, is, is a bridge too far that they just have to cross because their love of the game and their seemingly unified front on driving this sport forward has meant that there hasn't been any dissenting voices. So for that, we should really stand up and applaud all of the players and coaches and, and field staff, but particularly the players involved because there's professionally... Uh, a lot of favours being asked. And we also should recognise the employees. And uh, in some cases, uh, the women are, of course, self-employed. But they're making a lot of sacrifices and people are, are doing a lot of things to make sure this happens. Yeah, they are. And the uh, the unity is very obvious, isn't it? Uh, last weekend, too, with Pride Round, um, you know, the jumpers being worn for that, uh, quite striking, some of them. Fremantles, I think, particularly. And... Um, you know, clearly in AFLW, um, it is a major, major issue. Well, it's a major issue across society, but uh, yeah, certainly a bit of pushback um, after some, uh, let's say, intemperate comments from West Coast AFLW coach Michael Pryor. Um, and uh, that they were quickly corrected. But, uh, I, you know, I'm really enjoying seeing... Um, the entire competition sort of band together so tightly around important social issues and um, sexual orientation and sexual equality certainly is one. And obviously that's prominent in the AFLW uh, with a, a, a particularly high rate of same-sex relationships happening. And uh, that's going to become the norm. So if it makes you feel at all uncomfortable, uh, better get used to it, I'd suggest. And um you know, I think things like Pride Round are, are really important vehicles for drawing attention to important social issues. So let's not forget that either. Uh, spot on. And uh, as a learning, 
as a, as a vehicle for learning, the AFL, the, well, let's just say the AFL has, of recent times, seen themselves at the vanguard of change. And I've got to say, the AFLW are taking us into places that many of us are not familiar with. I'm not saying we're adverse to, but we're not familiar with the concept of uh, non-binary non gender choices, for example. And I think the AFLW, more so than the AFL, is where a lot of learning is being done, especially for a generation, our generation, Rowan, that are not familiar with and haven't been exposed to this at school where there is education. Well, let's talk about uh, the games that have been played in round three thus far. So, again, as we record this on Tuesday morning, still one game to complete round three. Well, actually, I mean, that would have left it one short. But five games played so far across the weekend. Uh, kicked off down at GMHBA Stadium with Collingwood taking on Geelong. And the Cats, third week in a row, finally, where they have narrowly failed to get the points but nonetheless been very impressive with their competitiveness against uh, the Pies, who are clearly a very good side this year. The Cats were right within striking distance and um, there was some great footy played in uh, in this match. Some real fantastic, desperate defence by the Cats in that last quarter, holding the Pies out from getting what would have been uh, winning scores. Chloe Malloy, um, crucial for the Pies with a couple of uh, critical goals, one in the third quarter, one in the last quarter. Uh, Amy McDonald, terrific for the Cats with 20 touches. So zip three, Geelong, but um, a side that barely won a game last season has been, uh, funnily enough, despite its winless status, one of the more impressive sides so far this season. They're a youthful team and I think that the best they could have hoped for this season was improvement. And amazingly, at zero and three, they, along with Richmond, to me, are the most improved teams. I mean, they've really stepped up their competitive, their, how competitive they are. But given the profile of the side, they're a team to watch, not only in years to come, but probably in the second half of this season. Yes, and uh, boy, they've still got a long way to go, though, to uh, reach the status of some of the measuring sticks of the competition. And one of them, yet again, no doubt, Adelaide this season, very impressive and comfortable winners over West Coast. The final scores in that game, Adelaide 6-6-42, defeating West Coast 1-3-9. Only 13 points of difference at halftime, but uh, the Crows just going up a cog in the third term. Ebony Marinoff, superb for them. She ended up with 23 disposals. Eloise Jones ended up with 20-odd. Um, uh, strong up forward again. Ashley Woodland, a couple more goals. So she's after that goal-kicking record. And Adelaide outscoring West Coast 3-4 to just two points in the second half for a very easy win. It's uh, Look, it's tough. Tough times for the WA teams so far away from home and uh, on the road, well, for uh, a while longer yet. And uh, West Coast still in a developmental phase. But Adelaide really, once again, finding a real measuring stick of this competition. Yeah, very powerful. And the fact that they've been able to 
add, you know, we know that say, Phillips up forward was the measuring stick early on. Now they've got Ash Woodland, a real chance to take out the leading goal kicker this AFLW season. They're strong across the ground. And for West Coast, one of these teams that join the competition later than others, what a difficult season because all the development is all about consistency. And as you said, to have to play your season outside of the state. Look, we'll talk about Fremantle shortly and that'll sort of counter the argument. But in a developmental stage, I think that must be very difficult. All right. Well, let's head back to Melbourne and uh, a battle of two local teams. That was Melbourne and St Kilda at Casey. And a difficult venue for visitors to win at. And uh, thus it proved again. But St Kilda, look, they've been really struggling. But uh, three-quarter time this game, scores were level. And uh, the Saints really hung in there. And I've got to say, too, just a a little self-indulgent, but... uh, one of my favourites, Tilly Lucas Rod, a former teammate of my daughter's, actually at the East Melbourne Knights, and um, she's really coming into her own this season. She was terrific for the Saints with twenty-two touches, nine tackles, as well. Karen Paxman, uh, that tough, uh, consistent Melbourne veteran, uh, terrific for them. Sarah Lampard, pretty good for the Demons as well, but uh, really took until that last quarter, and boy. Did they turn it on in the last term? Six goals coming in that final quarter with the breeze at their backs. Uh, your premiership tip, Finey. Uh, gee, they're looking good. The Pierce uh, girls, Lauren and Daisy, both conspicuous. Taylor Harris really fitting in well up forward for them. Um, the Demons, uh, could we have a Melbourne premiership double for uh, the most recent seasons, both the men's and women's finding. Oh, yeah, give that, sorry, I'll just give that final score to yep. Melbourne, 9-10-64, 41 point winners over the Saints, 3-5-23. And those 41 points were the 41 points that they scored in the last quarter when they turned the tap on. Look, there was a breeze down there, so there was a scoring end and, Yes, no question, coming into that last quarter, Melbourne were expected to win on the back of the breeze, but they slammed on six goals. Yes, they're a premiership contender. Now, for mine, that solidifies and becomes even more of a reality because of the way Taylor Harris played. In those first three quarters, when goals were hard to come by, it's in Kilda were highly competitive. She took two or three great grabs. Um, Mr. Mr. Shot or two, but generally is a very good kick and really just a big powerhouse forward uh, up there taking strong marks is almost not the icing on the cake. More importantly than that is the key ingredient that Melbourne might not have had. To me, they look solid all over the field. We've spoken about Paxman. We know that they've got so many great, well, just consistent players on ball and the Pierces. Yep, I think they're the real deal. And Melbourne, dare I say it, the powerhouse of Australian rules football. (coughs) Can't believe I said it. Well, it's uh, certainly not a phrase that's uh, come to mind over the last 50-odd years. But there you go. Things change quickly in this game. Uh, All right, let's head to Punt Road, where Fremantle... uh, had to do it against the Tigers. You mentioned Richmond before. They have definitely improved 
this season. And this was a really, this is one of the higher quality uh, women's games I've seen, I reckon. And uh, the scoreline indicates that as well. Fremantle, in the end, 30 point winners. 11 11 77, defeating Richmond 7 5 47. But the Tigers really kept them working hard. And uh, a bit like Geelong, again, some great performances without necessarily getting the results. Um, Fremantle finally, uh, I guess, prevailing uh, class and a, a bit more strength and experience sort of proving um, decisive in the finish. Uh, in the ruck, Mim Strom, uh, pretty significant there. 18 hitouts. Uh, terrific game for the Dockers. Kiara Bowers again. Hayley Miller, the captain. Gee, she's a, a really good player for them. Uh, Gabby O'Sullivan, uh, terrific as well. Actually, just an aside here, Fanny, uh, I am going to gym uh, pretty regularly. In fact, every day at the moment, when you get on the treadmill, um, the, there's only one TV working at the moment and it's permanently glued to Fox footy, which has AFLW on a pretty permanent loop. And, uh, I can, I'm getting a gauge of how much fitness work I'm doing by how well I know these games. And, um, some of these games I'm almost knowing kick by kick by the end of the week. I've seen them that many times with their mini matches. Anyway, I digress. Um, Fremantle, pretty impressive. They have been impressive for a while now, probably, Stiff not to win a premiership in that abandoned season a couple of years ago. Strong last year as well. But uh, Cara Antonio, Ebony Antonio, very strong for them as well. Gemma Houghton up forward, always dangerous. And she chipped in with a couple as well. But uh, yeah, the Tigers really strong with the likes of Monique Conti and uh, Katie Brennan as well. And they are making some pretty rapid headway. Really enjoyed this game, Finally, Another really good example of the improvements this competition has made. Now, I said something after the first game of the season. I'm going to stick by it. Now, I know Richmond are unlikely to play finals. They're a good team, but there's just probably more experienced, stronger teams. Um I reckon Monique Conti is going to win the award for best player in the competition this year. Only because I think she's a star and I know Katie Brennan might take some votes off her, but she's such a standout at Richmond at the moment. Boy, she's a good footballer, no question. I just want to comment on Mim Strom and a couple of the ruckmen that go around in the AFLW. I'm super impressed by the ruck work of the better ruckmen in this uh, rucks, I should say, pardon me, in this competition. A lot of them have a basketball background, so I'm not surprised that they're very good at directing the ball because there is a lot of that in basketball, defensively and offensively rebounding. But some of the ruck work has been outstanding and a real advantage for a side to have a strong ruck. Fremantle certainly have that. Uh, No, good observation. And... uh technically I think the ruck works pretty pure too. And maybe that's because it's less about physical strength than as much about technique. So um, we're starting to see some of the, uh, the nuances I think of AFLW uh, that are different to the men's variety uh, or right, a final game of the five played as we record this. And uh, it involved North Melbourne, well, smashing GWS, a bit of a late revival by the Giants in the last quarter after it was all said and done, but uh, North Melbourne gave them a pasting in the end, 7 12 
defeating GWS 4-3-27. Like I said, the Roos goalless in the last quarter, GWS kicking three of theirs. Then it uh, well, it was a really lopsided game, this one. The Giants, unfortunately, just didn't turn up, basically. And um, North been very impressive this season. Uh, Daria Bannister, uh, two first-half goals to her. Ellie Gavalis, impressive. Daisy Bateman got another one. Ash Riddell, um, boy, is she racking up the touches. Another 23 for her this week. And uh, Talia Randall, um, wow, what a mark that was. I don't know if you saw it, Fanny, but... Uh, yeah, I, saw, I, I actually did. I'll copy shortly, but I did see this game. And that mark was, I mean, boy, oh boy. It's spectacular, Mark. There were a lot of highlights in this game, but they're all in one jumper. Well, it was great. Like I said, uh, I was at the gym on the treadmill and I saw that mark for the first time and I um, inadvertently yelled out, what a grab. Everyone yeah. looked around at me. But, um, yeah, no, they're, they're looking uh, pretty ominous. The reason another very worthy contender this season. What did you make of this one? I actually thought that we could conceivably, having watched that first half of football, had our first 100-point win, in women's football. Now, I, I'm glad that GWS put something on the board and, you know, showed a fair bit of resolve in that last quarter. They were terrible, Rowan. They were, they were really, really poor. Now, there is a marked difference between the best and the worst in this competition. And part of it revolves around experience and time together but GWS don't have that as a reason for the way they played football on the weekend and you know what unfortunately GWS are a cause for concern in well when I say cause for concern as a foot as as they are performing I would say that they are the most disappointing team in the competition they were they were very poor, and execution of skills was very low, Rowan. Now, they don't seem to be improving at any rate at all, so uh, food for thought there. Uh, all right, like I said again, uh, that round finished off Tuesday evening as we record this with Brisbane taking on Carlton at Metricon Stadium, but uh, a... a uh, well, pretty constant diet of games coming up over the next few weeks, and uh, we'll fill you in on all of them here on this podcast. All right, that's enough news for this week. It's time to continue the music and movie countdown. Vinyl and video. Pressing rewind on our favourite music, movies and TV. We're down to the top 10, number nine this week in our favourite 20 movies and songs of all time. Getting a lot of uh, commentary on social media, these lists and uh, some fairly diverse selections. Um, Last week, fairly mainstream. This week, eh, not quite as mainstream. In fact, musically speaking, definitely not. Uh, but let's start with the movies. And uh, I am once again finding reverting to a favourite genre of comedy and one of my favourite directors, but I stress uh, tends to be his earlier work. And this is a very good example of him. The director of whom I speak 
and also cast in the lead role, uh, done this plenty of times, is none other than Woody Allen. The film from 1971 is Bananas. And if there's a knowing smile just across your face, it would be because you have seen one of the funniest movies, I think, of all time. And Woody in this one plays a um, fairly hapless, that is a role he does play a lot, uh, product tester called Fielding Millish. He's a bit awkward and uh, a bit socially inept and a bit of a loser, to be perfectly frank. And he sort of inadvertently gets swept up in the cause of a South American country, San Marcos, uh, which has had his its president assassinated and there's a revolution in the air. And uh, Woody uh, not only ends up becoming a South American revolutionary, he ends up becoming the president of San Marcos. The female lead is one of his uh, a favourite early lead, Louise Lasser. She's terrific as his accomplice in this film. Um I like all those early Woody Allen films, Finey. This one's just got some particularly good gags, I think, involving his training as a South American revolutionary. Uh, he does a lot of slapstick in these early films, but it always makes me laugh, unlike some slapstick. There's great scenes in the, uh, the court when he is on trial and he is uh, defending himself and, and thus jumping from the uh, witness box out of the box to ask himself a question, then back into the box to answer it. There is uh, evidence presented by Miss America, who calls him a subversive mother, and a uh, large um, African-American woman uh, who is apparently J. Edgar Hoover in disguise. It's a movie that begins with legendary American sports commentator Howard Cosell commentating the assassination of the San Marcos president and finishes with Howard Cosell commentating the consummation of the marriage between Fielding Mellish and his partner. Um, just a lot of great uh, visual gags, uh, like when uh, Woody has to go and order lunch for the rebels and uh, has to walk a fair way to the local delicatessen and order several thousand uh, ham and salad on rye sandwiches, etc., etc. I think you get the drift. Very, very funny movie. If you haven't seen it, Bananas, Woody Allen, 1971. Have you seen it, Finey? Of course I've seen it, Rowan. You know, my taste in uh, movies certainly includes consuming all things comedic and early Woody Allen. And it is a fantastic movie as you know i've got a woody allen movie we've done the woody allen movie in my top 20 and it was um well, pardon Broad me it was broadway, broadway danny, danny rose pardon me broadway danny rose bananas see it runs it runs close to it in fact there are just when you did remind me of the howard cosell ending to the movie i sort of wonder how i didn't include Broadway Danny Rose, then again, uh, pardon me, Bananas, then again, it could have been Take the Money and Run, it could have been Sleepers, because they all have a certain energy to them. And there is the, there is just this um, craziness, this hyper-reality taken to the nth degree sometimes by Woody that I adore. Some people find it, some, you know what, 
Some people don't get it. That's okay. If you don't get it, you don't like it. There is that sort of neurotic Jewish humour that runs through it regularly and that in, that witness that Miss America sort of <laughs> um, hones in on that. If you don't, if you don't, if you're not into Woody, you won't love any of his movies. But if you are, this is going to be so close to the top of the list, it's not funny, eh? Yeah, as you said that, I just remembered a couple of things too. Another bit in the uh, the courtroom scene where the members of the jury are passing a joint around between themselves and uh, the uh, revolutionary leader uh, who demands uh, all the, revol- the rebels sing the song which uh, goes, rebels are we, born to be free, just like the fish in the sea, and doesn't get anyone joining in. It looks like an absolute dick. He, of course, ends up being uh, marginalised because he decrees that uh, everyone must wear their underwear on the outside. Um, and there's a, a, another ruction when that happens. Anyway, uh, you get the drift. Great movie. Check it out if you haven't already. Okay, Finey, what have you got? One of my favourite comedies from a very similar time with a different feel, but still uh, directed by a man, I'm sure, who was influenced in part by Woody Allen and who influenced Woody Allen. I speak of Mel Brooks. And I will say this, the best Mel Brooks movies don't feature Mel Brooks, even though he uses his voice in it, apparently. But I speak of the 1974 film Young Frankenstein, starring Gene Wilder as his, for me, at his, well, equal best, because I loved him in Willy Wonka, didn't everybody, but he is Dr. Frankenstein, of course, calls himself Frankenstein for the first part of the movie, not willing to be associated with the horrific legend of Frankenstein, but he embraces the name as the movie goes on. The monster, or Frankenstein's monster, as he is correctly termed, is brilliantly played by Peter Boyle. You might know him as the curmudgeonly father from Everybody Loves Raymond, but he is absolutely brilliant with his sideway glances and comedy without, at many times, silent comedy, playing the role of Frankenstein's, Frankenstein's monster. There's Terry Garr as a love interest, Madeline Kahn as Elizabeth and she ends up as Bride of Frankenstein. A bit of a spoiler there, but it doesn't ruin the movie. Um, the brilliant Marty Feldman as Igor, much of his comedy apparently in the movie was ad-libbed and had them in stitches. The outtakes are worth seeing because some of the scenes can barely be completed for a number of takes because of his famous eyes and eye rolls and ad-libbing. And in fact, one of the more famous lines in the movie, which was uh, sort of ad-libbed and acted, was the walk this way line. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but um, when the Terry Garth, Terry Garan arrives at the castle, they do the old gag, walk this way. And, of course, everybody... It, it, Marty Feldman impersonates the way that the person is walking rather than the direction in which they're walking. Now, did you know, and this is true, that um, Tyler, uh, what's his name, the lead singer of Aerosmith? Stephen Tyler. Stephen Tyler 
Sorry, that's the cue for me to repeat the line out of the start of the Love in an Elevator video where he enters the lift and the uh, lift driver, who for some reason is 21 female and clad only in lingerie, says, Morning, Mr. Taylor. Going down. <laughs> I'm glad I gave you the in. Um I used to do that on the rock and roll podcast every week, finding a little known fact. Uh, Go on. What would, if you brought this up in one of those uh, comedy quizzes that are on TV as a a true or false moment or a lie that somebody has promulgated, I guarantee you nobody would believe this is true, but it is true. Steve Tyler was watching Young Frankenstein one night and it just happened to be uh, the night before a lyric writing session or a songwriting session. And that line, Walk This Way, had stuck in his head. And that's where we get the song, Walk This, you know, that line. Is the- that right? I was about to do a gag about it, absolutely having no idea of the connection. That is, a, that is amazing. And that is a fact confirmed by Steve Tyler. It just sort of stuck with him and walked this way. Of course, Fuck became, this way! And, right. and then on it went. So that's a, a little nugget. Um, I just love the humour in this movie. I, I, I adore it. There's a cameo by um, uh, Gene Hackman, who actually played the role of the blind monk. And it's just a little self-contained scene where uh, the... Frankenstein's monster comes across this blind man in the middle of the forest and some typical Mel Brooks-esque humour there. You could imagine that a scene straight out of Get Smart. Gene Hackman, Mel Brooks was talking to Gene Hackman about the movie. He said, put me in it, put me in it. And he said, well, there's no, it's written, it's done. There's no role for you. And they came up with this little sort of self-contained bit and Gene Hackman did it for no pay. He just wanted to be part of what he thought was a funny movie. I, I love it. I, I just think it's a, a great movie. Um, it, it's, and, and if you want to, for me, just take a scene out of a movie and say, what's the funniest scene you've ever seen in a movie? It's when Gene Wilder pre- presents the monster to the local townsfolk. And he says that it's capable of doing, you know, some simple acts he's created this lot he's created life and to prove it he's just going to show some sort of eye-hand coordination and what he's taught the the monster and they do a duet of putting on the ritz which (laughs) is absolutely fantastic including the monster vocalizing putting on the ritz (laughs) very good uh, glowing endorsement. There you go. A couple of comedies to brighten up these COVID addled times. Young Frankenstein uh, from 1974 and Bananas, 1971, our respective number nine films. Uh, number eight coming up next week. Number nine songs, Finey. Well, uh, we've both gone yeah, pretty niche here, I feel. Now, this is a favourite band of mine. I've talked about them plenty of times on this podcast i do love this band though the new york hardcore band helmet 
And uh, one of my favourites, of course, share or for some time shared a drummer with another of my favourite bands, the Mark of Cain, that drummer, John Stania, very distinctive drumming style. Helmet style, though, like the Mark of Cain, is tight. So tight you could slice someone with it. They are so tight in their riffarama. And this song is a fantastic example of it. Its name is Milk Toast. Let's have a listen. Ironic title, Rowan. Yes, it's pretty heavy. Well, ironic uh, band too, Finey, because a really tough sound. But unlike you might have expected, they're very clean-cut looking boys. The guys from Helmet often wore those sort of knee-length shorts that were all the rage in the early nineties, and uh, no, no visible tats, I don't think, and uh, fairly short back and sides. But boy, did they uh, churn out a tough tough sound and uh, this song too if it rings a bell uh on the soundtrack of the film the crow with the late brandon lee a great soundtrack the crow and this song is a feature of it in fact the film clip for the song has scenes from the crow in it but just that tight riffing crunching guitar sound i love so much and uh helmet were very very emblematic of that sound. They were sort of supposed to be the um, uh, the New York Nirvana, if you like. Uh, never quite got that big, but uh, don't think they weren't pretty popular because they certainly were in the US. And uh, in fact, the band's still going. Very different lineup now. And this was the original and the best lineup. But one of my favourite bands, Helmet, the song Milk Toast, number nine in my top. 20 songs. All right, Finey, what are you going with? I may as well I may as well be going with one of Prince's hits here, Controversy or Controversy. This song was voted by a magazine and online music provider, information provider, PSF, the most controversial song of all time. The film clip to this song was MTV's most controversial film clip of all time. Only played, played actually originally by MTV, ripped off air and then replayed only on their 10 most controversial film clips of all time. I think it's caused a fair bit of discussion between us two. It's Prodigy, or The Prodigy. This is Smack My Big Shot.
you're right. It is controversial. You're right. It did spark some discussion between us. Look, I'm not uh, pro-censorship. My problem with songs like this, even if they're couched ironically or critically, is with music, it's so easy not to get that. And then it ends up propagating a pretty disturbing message. And I'll, go, I'll give you another example of this. Like, I, I'm not into that genre of music. I do remember this song. And in fact, I do have this CD because I quite liked uh, the next single off it, which was Breathe. Um, Can I just jump in for one second? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting that you're not into this music because they sample, this is a dance rave song. You know, they sample three songs in this in this song, Smack My Bitch Up, and one of the songs that they sample is Bulls on Parade by Rage Against the Machine. I didn't know that. I didn't yep. know that. I'll have to have a closer listen. I, I was just going to say another example of this for me, and it's, it is one of my favourite bands, Stone Temple Pilots, and a song called Sex Type Thing, and it's written uh, in, in the words of a potential rapist, you know, and that caused a fair bit of... Is that what you're saying? That's, the, that's what the band, I presume, sort of presented as their defence of this song. The band... Th these words are sampled... Again, they're, they're not lyrics of theirs. It's a sample from a rapper. The words that they sampled are explicit and unquestion unquestionably misogynistic and unacceptable. And they work to the prodigy as well. So they remove certain words because the term smack my bitch up is doing something to the nth degree. Now, it's not anything... In their words, it's got nothing got to do with violence against women, let alone violence at all. And you know that uh, that um, modern sort of um, urban language is at times, well, it's hard to interpret. It is intentionally ironic or it is intentionally the opposite of what is meant to be said because it is a sort of... Um, attack on establishment and it's the sort of language that says well this is how we speak you don't get it because you don't get us look it, it i can understand we need to take things on face value as well so my love of this song comes from its powerful music and it's it's changing waves it, it has deep eastern influences but very you know powerful, strong, um, hardcore dance influences. I saw this band live at Big Day Out and this was, they were the headline act and this was the headline song. And Rowan, I never sort of say this, but if you wanted to see the Melbourne showgrounds go off, boy, did it go off. It was electric, powerful, explosive. And to me, the best song to get up and be dancing to. Now, that maybe means that I ignore the lyrics or I accept their explanation of it. So I can understand where the controversy lies, but I also believe that a band has the right to provide lyrics and then their own explanation thereof, because, you know, words can mean so many different things. We know that, for example, the use of the N-word, so prolific in... Um, urban black music 
has, you know, when being misused, the, is the most vile of, of epithets. So I leave it to a band to make the explanation. Have you seen the film clip, by the way? It's extraordinary. Uh, I don't think I have. I've just got to explain it quickly. It's I'm not saying, but look, the, the band, the film clip is shot in that sort of first person, you know, like which Blair Witch Project. Yeah. And it's a night out. It's a night out clubbing on drugs. There's fights at the bar. You know, there's fights, you know, men, are, men are, you know, there's fights with blokes. There's pushing around of women, which is sort of unacceptable. There's serious drug use. There's intravenous drug use. And then at the end of the clip, the person sort of goes home, passes out, wakes up and looks at themselves in the mirror and it's a blonde girl. Now, the idea is you watch the entire film clip, you are sure it is a bloke out on a bender. But it's no bloke. It's a beautiful right. I'll, I'll check it out. And there's a very articulate uh, defence of your song. So uh, I'm certainly enlightened by that. I'll, I'll have a re-listen, watch the clip and, and uh, look at it with a new perspective. There you go. Our number nine song, Smack My Bitch Up by The Prodigy, is yours, Finey. Mine is Milk Toast by Helmet. Number eight next week. All right. Uh, time now. Uh, we're fairly philosophical then. Let's keep the philosophical theme going with a bit of life hackery. Life hacks. Building a better world. All right. Well, we had some controversy there, but uh, I've gone for a bit of a feel-good uh, theme this week, Finey. I've got to admit, I really haven't watched much of this year's Australian Open at all. I'm sure I will uh, as we get to the pointy end. Just haven't had a chance uh, really so far this year. But one thing um, I have uh, drawn attention to, funnily enough, is I've, I've read and seen more about the off-court stuff and the on-court stuff. Elena Dokic, um, been through a tough time lately. She's uh, Her long-term relationship of something like 18 years uh, has just broken up, and she's been very candid about that. Um, she's been copying some more vile abuse on social media about her weight, uh, and she's had a bit to say about that. Um, anyway, to that end, I've been... Thinking about Yelena a bit, I, I'm a I'm a big fan. I've got to say, Finey, I you know like everyone else, I witnessed her career from afar, and once we became more privy to the horror show that was her father Demir, um, I think we all became a lot more sympathetic towards Yelena. And but I was absolutely, I, I reckon, like a lot of people would have been a few years ago. She came into SEN. Um, to do some, uh, do an interview uh, about her book. And I was filling in as host for one of the shows. I can't remember whose show it was, but um, I've rarely been so struck at how nice someone was, just how genuine and, and warm she was. And when you put that in the context of what she'd been through, uh, it was just remarkable. And I was so. Uh, I just thought, you know, this this is a beautiful woman, like beautiful physically, but a beautiful soul as well. And I think it's become more and more obvious. And she's also a, a terrific, very professional commentator as well, just a natural. So 
she's really carved out a, a another significant career for herself um, post her playing days. Anyway, this all came up again yesterday because um, there was a, a beautiful moment, arguably the the moment of the tournament so far, and. Um, she was on court to interview Elise Cornet after she won her match. And Cornet, out of nowhere, uh, decided to pay Elena a, a lovely tribute. And she basically, you know, stopped talking about herself and said, uh, you've you've moved on. You were a wonderful player and, and now you're a, a brilliant commentator. And, um, you know, we, we all think so highly of you. And the whole crowd just spontaneously... Uh, burst into loud applause and um, there was a, a beautiful embrace between them and Yelena started crying and said, you've made me cry and then got on with the interview very professionally. But it was just a, it was just a really, there's very little spontaneity in top level sport now. And this was a, a, a very clearly spontaneous, unsolicited moment. And just that raw emotion and, and the love and affection for Elena, uh, I just thought it was a, a really beautiful moment, and I, I watched the the video on my Twitter feed, and it actually made me tear up as well. So I don't know if I'm particularly emotional at the moment, but she's a, a lovely human being, Elena Dokic, and uh, every time I see her or hear her, I I can't help but think, um, you know, gee, some people are, are just great; they can overcome all sorts of adversity and. Um, you know, terrible things that have happened to them and somehow still find the courage to keep going and and the positivity um, to, you know, um, look fondly on, on life and, and people in it. So uh, bravo, Elena, and, and bravo, Elise Cornet, for, for doing that. It was a, a wonderful moment in this tournament. That's my life hack, Fanny. You're a bit of a crier, aren't you? Oh, I'm a huge... I could cry for Australia. I... Uh, uh, I cry in all sorts of things you'd never believe someone could cry in. I'm a happy crier too. That's good. I I cry at the movies and I'm starting to realise what makes me cry. And it's really, I'm, I'm a sucker for the photo montage sort of. Oh, yeah. And I, I saw we saw King Richard at the end of the movie. For no reason, you know, there's like a photo montage of real footage of Serena and Venus and um, Richard, their father, mm. played with suitably sort of um, the suitable music to it. That's Will Smith, isn't it? Playing that yeah, role? Yeah, correct. But this was actually the real people. Oh, yeah, yeah. And photos of them as, when they were very young and et cetera, et cetera. And I started tearing up. And that got a sense of it. And I did the old, uh, gee, there must be dust mites or something here I'm in this cinema. I don't know why. I, I refuse to own up to it. <laughs> uh, I don't mind. There's no point hiding it. I'll tell you what, uh, speaking about montages, have you seen the series Six Feet Under? Yeah. yeah. Well, surely you must have absolutely bawled your eyes out at the end of that. Remember the final scene of that where they sort of shoot, they throw forward you know over the, the that's right they do don't they do i forgot about that and that's one I of the most watch. that's one of the most memorable they do they do throw forward I, yeah i must have cried i must have because i really like that series that's, that's a great the, series i love six the, that was with the aussie wasn't it yeah rachel griffiths i bumped into her literally she's a very interesting and funny lady rachel griffiths yeah, I, I, 
I used to do some fitness work at St Kilda Baths. And it's a busy place St Kilda Baths, and I swam head on into Rachel Griffiths. <laughs> there you go. I always <laughs> remember her turning up uh, topless to protest Crown Casino when that first opened back in the late 90s. Um, well, it wasn't the same day as this because she was definitely, you know, she was definitely swimsuited. All right, your life hack, please. I'm confused, Robert. Why is that? That's just my life hack. Well, we live, obviously, in COVID times, correct? We do. What are the current requirements for wearing a face mask, QR codes? I don't know. I go into some places, everybody's just walking in. I walk in. Other places... Can I check your phone? Other places put a mask on. Other places take your mask off. I've got no idea. There seems to be, I don't know. I, I'm simply, I'm completely confused as to what the requirements are for entry into places, walking down the street, being at the park, being in a crowd. But, uh, have you? State and federal governments just thrown their hands up in the air and said, be careful. I don't know. I, I really don't know what's going on. Uh, no, I agree entirely. And I think they have just basically thrown their hands up and said, just do the best you can. No, you're right. And there seems to be different sort of protocols in different settings. Uh, I know, like, for example, you go into, say, a service station or whatever, everyone will have the masks on. Um I go into gym, a lot of people don't bother because you don't have them on when you exercise, but some people will wear them in there. Um, just coincidentally, the gym is next to a medical clinic where they've been vaccinating people, so there's a bit of a contrast there. QR codes, yeah, it seems to me like most people don't. But even, you know, more important protocols, like, for example, in the gym, you know, wiping down equipment afterwards. You know, I've been doing that very religiously, but, gee, I've seen a lot of people that don't. And I've started pulling people up too, just sort of subtly. Um, but you're right. I think we're at a stage now where all those, you know, when there were fewer cases, it was easier to to keep banging on about those protocols. But it's just got completely out of hand now. And I guess... It's sort of like a feeling there's more important matters afoot, although we don't even get them right, do we? We haven't got enough rapid antigen tests. And and you've got the Deputy Prime Minister yesterday saying that, uh, well, people haven't died, <laughs> except the 40-odd a day who are dying. Um, uh, yeah, it's uh, confusing times. You're right. Yeah. I agree. And there is a word, Rowan, you know how we've had all these sort of words that have been key to the understanding of where we are in lockdown everything from lockdown to qr codes rapid antigen tests up the curve and this and that so there is one final word and i don't know whether people are over it but i think it's going to be the the full stop on covid as something that is sort of legislated and affects our lives by law and that is endemicity. And I think we're rapidly approaching it, Rowan. Well, I think you better explain to our audience what it is. Well, it's the end of it, it will basically be the end of the pandemic. So when something becomes endemic, 
which the 1990, 19, Spanish flu didn't go away. It just became endemic in society. And then we learned to live with the flu and it became weaker through different strains. So when it's decided that the coronavirus is simply endemic, it, it will never go away. Mm. It is part of society. We, the current strain, Omicron, we hope, and the graphing is that future strains, by nature of viruses, they want to multiply and they best multiply in living bodies. So they become less likely to be fatal, but more likely to be easily spread. We just say it's endemic. It's like the flu. It's like a cold. It's like many other things that we live with, um, especially in viral terms, certainly like the flu and, the, and a cold. And once it's endemic, then it's, you know, just live with it. Life goes on. Well, let's hope it is uh, end me city and not end me city. <laughs> well, the, the, the great danger is that, and it's not expected, but if, if we do get a strain that becomes um, more virulent and more potent, then it might be end me city seriously because if all the if all the protections are down and it's endemic and it has the ability to kill everybody then we've got a huge problem all right philosophical again let's move on to something a bit more pleasant and what's more pleasant than a bit of footy nostalgia Fantastic footy flashbacks. All right, footy flashbacks time. I've gone back uh, further than I have for quite a while, Fanny. I'm not even sure why I thought of this one, but uh, I've gone back to 1980, and it is the preliminary final between Collingwood and Geelong. Now, uh, I'm sure fans of those two clubs will remember these two played in two successive preliminary finals. They played in the following years, one, of course, and that, uh, and a fairly infamous occasion for the Cats, because what happened that day, Finey, in 1981? Well, that would have been a famous ex-Saints missing the bus, wouldn't it, Gary Sidebottom? Correct, and uh, a famous uh, ex-Demon, or went on to play for... No, no, he did go from uh, Melbourne to Geelong. Um, Peter Johnson, who was... Uh, comfortably tucked away in the grandstand uh, chowing down on a hamburger when he got the call up to play in a preliminary final because side bottom and missed the bus. Anyway, that's not even the year I'm talking about. So why are we going there? That was 1981. Collingwood won that one. Uh, they were both very close matches though. Let's see how this one unfolded. And it's Bruce Mancurvis taking it over the half forward line. It'll fall a bit short a chance for Billy Pickett to take the mark down there towards the back pocket. Pickett now looking his game in the final term. Goes for lead out towards Ray Byrne. Picked under 11 for Byrne. If it had a been, he's gone for the hand pass to Wearmouth. Clark's running his hammer. Ronnie Wearmouth looks for low. It's over his head. Out comes Yates in the back pocket. Played very well today. I know Billy Goggin is a big rap for him. And short passes to Bruce Van Curvis right on the point of the square. And Curvis goes wide, looking for Turner. Naturally, he would because he's best man on the ground. Michael Turner's short pass to Terry Bright. He's been quiet today. He can score a goal from there, though. Fires it at the big sticks. Looks OK. Wait for the goal umpire. Four points. 
Badly needed one for Geelong, and they come back in this preliminary final. Seven big league scoreboard. Collingwood 13-15, Geelong 12-10. But Geelong are not giving up if we see a hand pass. Coming back here now to Featherby, it bounces right. Another one back, and Geelong are really playing top football as the ball comes back there to Bruns. He's grabbed, gets a hand pass back. Back it comes to Billy Pick and ducks his head. He's grabbed. Umpire called play on, and rightly so, too. There's a real tackle down there by Stan Magro. It's Bruce Mancurvis driving them as a chance for Geelong now. A mark, a mark to Boss there at full four, and a full four about 40 metres out. He wouldn't be that. If he kicks this goal, it would be, what, uh, five points the difference? Right. Oh, Gully, are they playing strong football, Geelong? You've got to give them full marks, and Bruns has already kicked them up. Bruns, uh, Boss, I should say, a chance to kick uh, his third goal. And that's what he's done. So the Cats are right back in there now. So at the uh, 26 and a half minute mark, it's only five points the difference. Calling with 13, 15, 93. To Geelong, 13, 10, 88. 27 minutes now gone in the preliminary final last quarter. Five points the difference. Still anybody is matched. Peter Moore and Blake. Moore gets it down. Reed intercepting. And breaks away for Geelong, driving them up towards left half forward. Bruns and Magro. Another chance for Johnston. Can he put Geelong in front? Thrown back out to Bruns. Neville Bruns has a shot for goal. It's going goalwards, but is off target. And through for only one point to make it four points the difference. Can Collingwood hang on? 27 and a half minutes gone in the final quarter. Next goal would probably win it for either side. I don't think there'll be that much time on in this final term as McCormack goes towards the members' stand side. Kink over the top. Play on, or is it a mark? by Kevin Smith saying no mark. Collingwood fans disappointed. Geelong fans saying naturally enough. Ball up, half back. There are runners and trainers everywhere at the moment on the field. Both runners are out there. Moore and Blake. Kink. Oh, I got tripped up. We'll get a free kick. No doubt about that one. And Kink going back. Taking his time, realising Collingwood have time on their side at the moment. In he comes. Funny sort of kick, dropping short. Centre field, knock on by Woolno. Two Geelong players there. Middle Mr. Bruce Van Curtis was well done. Turner and Carlson. Turner, no, didn't take the grab on that occasion. Lee Carlson beats him to it and well played. Carlson towards right half forward, but only Jan Smith for Geelong is there. Craig Davis, there's the siren. Well, that is famous. A famous thrilling victory. Do you know what that one's called? What's that one called? The preliminary final we wish we lost. Oh, yes. I know why. Yeah, of course. Because the Pies, well, they, they came from fifth. Um, it was uh, a great effort. It was uh, the first time, actually, in the final five system, any side had come from an elimination final to the grand final. But they were sitting ducks for the very powerful Richmond combination who promptly, uh, let's say, tore them a new one in the grand final by a margin of 81 points. Um, this was a thriller, though, Finey. I was there and uh, very, very tense indeed. And Michael Turner uh, deserves a shout-out here. 32 disposals that day, significantly more, I think, than the next highest on the ground and an absolute clear best on ground in this game. The Pies... Oh, gee, they had some workmanlike players. Certainly not one of the uh, star-studded grand final lineups they went in with. Uh, they had the likes of 
And they have Mark Dreyer. Don't think he played in the grand final, but um, who else? Uh, Ian Lowe and David Young and Mike Woolno and he'd switch from Geelong and et cetera, et cetera. Some, uh, some workhorse types there, but thoroughly outclassed in the grand final. At least they got there, though, which is more than the Cats managed until, well, sometime later. In fact, close to 30 years later by the time they finally broke that premiership drought. All right, just thought that one was worth revisiting. A very tense, nail-biting preliminary final from 1981 for the Pie fans to savour. What do you got for us? I'm glad you took us a fair way back because I reckon I'm going as recent as I've ever gone. This game had an exciting finish. I'm not going to give away the result, even though it was only in 2021. I wonder how many people remember this nail-biter. So let's go back. Last season, round 13, North Melbourne taking on the Giants. They've done very well. In his milestone game, Sam Reed, in game 100, he sits it up for the Flyers. Where's Bobby Hill? Where's Finlayson? Lloyd will do. He kicked the last one. Well, they've been exposed down there in the air most of the evening. That's a really good kick. It wasn't top of the square as another 10 metres out. And the tools couldn't get there. This bloke could. To the boos. For two in a row for Lloyd. He spears it through. And scores are level. A 1 minute 17 second game. Scores level. Ball knocked down. Clearance is huge. No need to tell you that. Long launch. And in a mark. Hall from three deep, can't grab it. Any score and they'll lead. Himmelberg's got it. They've got him. Cunnington, can North take the lead back? It's a roller. Zebel to the Rawls. Heads long, half forward. Sirhaas spent. Haynes spent. Ball out of play. Not much they can do right there, no. Back into play. Mumford, Goldstein, Cunnington tied up, going nowhere. North led by 28 points at three-quarter time. Giants fighting hard to steal this one in Hobart. 36 seconds remain. Little dance step was good. Hammered forward. Bouncing ball. Himmelberg, Tarrant, ball knocked down. Flick up by Taranto. Ward played for the free, didn't get it. More seconds tick. Kelly keeps it alive. Little pat down. And he's scoring that lead. It's up to Lloyd. And he's missed a lot. Just had to score. And how big will that be in the context of the Giants' season? North Melbourne could take the remaining seconds off the clock. They do. Siren sounded. The siren has sounded. Kennedy has the ball in his hands for the finish to beat all finishes. It would have to be the biggest kick of the year from here. He is loaded up for the top. They can't let a score. 
and they don't. And we've got our first draw of 2021. Yeah, thrilling stuff. I, I do remember this vividly because North had only won one game to this point and looked for all the world like they were about to break the duck. You know, best part of five goals up at three-quarter time, but uh, really died as the, the Giants came home with a rush. Daniel Lloyd, well, chocolate spore lollies job there, finding kicks a goal to tie the scores and then misses the opportunity to win it for them. I think at the time, people were saying, that's it, GWS have blown their chance. They're, you know, I mean, North Melbourne were a cannon fodder sort of stuff and sure the GWS had to beat North Melbourne to make the finals. So pretty impressive effort for GWS to get back on the pony, as they say, and make the finals. I think after that, I'd say three-quarter time of that game, you would have got pretty good odds, GWS making the finals. Yeah, well, after after that draw, they were still in 10th spot on the ladder with, uh, what, five and a half wins. And, of course, ended up getting through to the second week of the final. So, um, yeah, pretty good revival by them. And I think their stocks finished uh, significantly higher than they were after this game, which, in the end, I guess they probably should have won. But exciting stuff. Number of draws, actually, in 2021. Three, I think Hawthorne had two. Uh, one against Melbourne, one against Richmond in the last game of the season. Um, so there you go. This another one of those draws. Good stuff, Fanny, and uh, thank you everyone for your company this week. We'll be back again next week. We're down to number eight next week in our vinyl and video countdown. More AFLW news and other news. More footy nostalgia. More ruminations on life, love, and all those other words that begin with L. And you can continue to support this podcast by visiting the ACAST supporter page wherever you listen to this podcast or by becoming an official Footyology patron at the many links to Patreon on footyology.com.au. Jump on board. Plenty of uh, good reading there on footy, on uh, music, on entertainment, on politics. And in fact, from a purely footy perspective, we have begun our tale of the tape series, Ronnie Werner having a forensic look at your side's prospects for 2022. In fact, Carlton getting a good run around today and the past couple of days. So check that out, footyology.com.au. Thanks for your company, everyone. We'll see you again next week.